All right, well, welcome to uh, Christian Belief One. This is really exciting. I was uh, super excited to have this many people ready to engage and learn. And uh, yeah, I'm just excited for these next few weeks. I wanted to hit a couple announcements really quick. Uh, if you registered today or this afternoon, you probably didn't receive this, but I sent an email out this morning uh, with the syllabus for those of you who are taking the class for credit. Uh, so the assignment details and the reading is in that. And then I also am going to send out my lecture notes each week. So if you want to print those out, you can, or just read them digitally, that's fine. Um, and so for those of you, if you haven't looked at the syllabus yet, the book that I'm really basing these lectures on is 50 Core Truths of the Christian Faith by Greg Allison. Greg is my PhD advisor. He's a great man, skilled teacher, um, but loves the Lord, loves the students. And um, I emailed him and let him know. I said, hey, you can expect a surge in book sales. <laughs> and he was like, I'm so thrilled you're using that book uh, because that's exactly why he wrote it was to be used in church settings like this. Um, and then real quick, I wanted to take a straw poll and ask about, uh, in the spring, Trace is going to teach another class. We have it on the schedule right now, uh, tentatively Monday night, um, but we wanted to ask if Sunday afternoons is a better time slot or if Monday night is better. So if you prefer Sunday afternoon, raise your hand. Okay. Gotcha. Just getting a poll. So, all right. Well, let me pray for us and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for revealing yourself to us and thank you for the opportunity to, to learn um, about you together in community. I pray that you would bless our time together these next four weeks. And as Terry mentioned this morning, I pray that we would seek to apply and put into practice uh, what we learn together here. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so roughly the lectures are going to correspond to the parts of the reading. So Christian Belief 1 is going to cover parts 1 through 4, so we're only going to read half this book. And then Christian Belief 2 is going to be offered in the fall, and then we'll cover the second half. And so week 1 matches up with part 1 of his book, which covers uh, the doctrine of the Word of God, so the doctrine of Scripture. And so the big idea is what is scripture? What is the nature of scripture? And the application is, do I view God's word as life-giving? And I'm thinking of Psalm 119.25, which says, my soul clings to the dust, give me life according to your word. So that's the big idea. Here's an outline for you this morning or this afternoon of what we're going to cover. Uh, before we jump into the doctrine of Scripture, 
we have a couple of preliminary things we need to talk about. Simple question, what is theology? We need to talk about the nature of theology, theology as a discipline, what is it? And then related to that is divine revelation. So we'll cover that, which will lead directly to our doctrine of the word of God. And those are the attributes that we're going to focus on this afternoon. The inspiration, inerrancy, the authority of scripture, and then the illumination of scripture. So let's start with what is theology. Simply put, theology is the study of God. Now, theology proper would be the study of God's nature or God's attributes. And so we're going to discuss theology proper uh, next week. But broadly, theology is the study of God and everything God has made. Theology seeks to understand God's relationship to the world, to humanity in particular, and to the things that God has revealed to us in Scripture. We can also think about theology as the sanctification of our reason, so God making holy uh, our minds. So, in other words, theology is the application of the renewal of our minds, Romans 12.1. So our sinful reason, our sinful ways of thinking are put to death through the Spirit, and then we turn our minds toward Christ. So if some, this is a rhetorical question, but if somebody were to ask you, uh, what does it mean to be a Christian, what would you say? there has to be some set of parameters for what Christianity is. So there might be various ways that we uh, respond to that question. What does it mean to be a Christian? Repent, be baptized. It's about relationship with God. It's about believing or putting your faith and trust in Christ, believing that Jesus died for your sins, that he was raised from the dead. It's about living a life of devotion to God. All of those things would be valid responses but you notice that each of those words require definition. Faith, trust, sin, God, repentance, baptism. So the assumption is there's content to our belief. So if somebody said, you know, answered the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? And they said, well, there's one God, but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. Or they said, well, to be a Christian means to believe in what God has revealed through the Old and New Testaments and in the Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price, then we would say, no, that's not what it means to be a Christian. So that's what doctrine is. Doctrine is like a set of guardrails, and that's what this class is about. It's designed to be a basic introduction to Christian doctrine. And some of us might, might not like that word. I know nobody in this room. Doctrine. Ah. Sadly, some of us, not some of us, uh, broadly in the culture, there has been this anti-intellectual tradition in evangelical circles 
where words like doctrine or theology are bad because they communicate a stuffy, dead, lifeless form of Christianity. And they would say, Christianity is about relationship. And that's true. But again, what does that mean? It requires content. It requires an articulation of what that means. So if you're going to say Christianity is about relationship with God, that would be an articulation of doctrine. You have to explain what that means. So doctrine shouldn't be caricatured like it's uh, lifeless, dead propositions. But doctrine really is this activity of orienting and ordering your mind toward Christ. So doctrine means teaching, and that's what we're going to do in this class. Explore the basic beliefs and teachings of historic Christianity. Orthodoxy means sound doctrine. And then orthopraxy is sound practice. So sound doctrine should lead to godly living. So in Allison's book, he has a section called enacting the doctrine. So that means putting the doctrine into practice. There's a theologian, Kevin Van Hooser, who talks about the Bible. He says scripture is like a a play script, like in the theater. And he says doctrine provides us guidance for how to play our part in the drama of redemption. So he doesn't mean uh, the Christian life is about play acting in a negative sense, but he means it's about this full-bodied expression of... um, participating in what God has done in our lives. So an important thing for us to grasp about the nature of theology is that uh, theology is science. Now I know that sounds jarring to our ears. Uh, Because of our context, we have this knee-jerk reaction to that. That doesn't sound right. We think science is the hard sciences, the scientific method. It's observable, empirical, testable data. Geology, physics, chemistry, biology. But philosophy, religion, spirituality, theology, those things are not science. But uh, that's actually a modern problem. Prior to the Enlightenment, theology was considered science. It comes from a Latin word that means knowledge. So the medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas said, theology is queen of the sciences. So in the pre-modern world, there was no separation between faith and science. Faith was considered science. It was real knowledge. Modern people have a problem believing that. But theology is real knowledge of God. It gives us the clearest picture of reality. 
Theology proceeds from the fact that God exists and God has made himself known. And the primary way we know God today is through his word, through scripture. So faith is knowledge, and it's not rooted merely in feelings. Faith is not rooted merely in experience, but faith is rooted in knowledge of God, which comes to us through the Scripture. So theology as a discipline, then, is just the practice of arranging our knowledge about God in a particular way. And there are two uh, primary ways of doing theology today. Biblical theology... and systematic theology. So, when we hear biblical theology, we would think, well, that's theology that's faithful to the Bible. We all want theology to be biblical. But that's not what's meant by biblical theology. Uh, Biblical theology has been used in a variety of ways, but today... Broadly, it's understood as explaining the the unified storyline of Scripture. That's biblical theology. That's what the kids learn upstairs in Next. Uh, They learn the story from the garden to Revelation. It's one unified story. And the goal of biblical theology is seeking to unpack how that story develops over time, how it unfolds through the Bible. Now, there was an early church theologian named Irenaeus, and he's known as one of the, uh, the first biblical theologians because he, he emphasized the order and the unity of Scripture. And he criticized this ancient heretical group known as the Gnostics, and they were crazy people, <laughs> who just made things up. Uh, I had to read their sacred scriptures this last semester, and it was, uh, it was interesting. But anyway, uh, Irenaeus responds to the Gnostics, and he wrote this five-volume book called Against Heresies. And here's his criticism of how the Gnostics used scripture. He said, They disregard the order and the connection of the scriptures, and they disjoint the members of the truth. And then he uses this imagery of a mosaic. And he says, think of a mosaic of a king. And it has all these you know, small pieces of glass. And he says, they've plucked out the pieces and they've rearranged that image into the image of a fox. They've exchanged the image of a king and turned it into a fox. And so what he's saying is they've plucked passages out of the Bible in a way that's distorted the unity and the coherence of the scriptures. And they're doing that to suit their own ends. And so all that to say, Irenaeus and biblical theology is concerned with the unified story of scripture. You can't just pluck pieces out. It's all a coherent whole. How does the law relate to Christ? So the Bible's not a collection of random 
moralistic tales, uh, but there's a grand narrative to Scripture. And that's the task of biblical theology. And I said the second way of doing theology is systematic. And systematic theology is simply an organized way of thinking about all that the Bible says. So there's a theologian I like named Herman Bovink. And here's how he defines systematic theology. He says, it's the orderly study of the truths of the Christian faith. The orderly study of the truths of the Christian faith. It's pretty simple. It's Systematic theology can freak people out. Oh, sounds really intense. But all it is is just an organized way of thinking about all that the Bible says. Contemporary theologian John Frame says that systematic theology is about the application of God's word to all areas of life. Stephen Wellham says one of the main purposes of systematic theology is to take our entire thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. So systematic theology is the application of Scripture to all areas of our life. And to do that, we need biblical theology, and we also need to understand how the Bible intersects with all other disciplines, history, science, psychology, ethics. And so it's merely just about accounting for all that Scripture says in a coherent way. And so the reason we need theologians to continue writing new systematic theologies is not because the Bible failed to provide us with adequate knowledge, but we need to apply Scripture to new challenges and new contemporary questions. So we constantly need new applications of Scripture to our lives and our social context. Now, why am I spending so much time on this? Well, that's because systematic theology uh, in some circles has fallen on hard times. So some people don't like it. They want to emphasize the narrative of Scripture. They want to emphasize biblical theology. And they would say, systematic theology, that's all this book is, is a concise systematic theology. But they would say that systematic theology is a construct imposed onto the Bible. So it's not natural to the Bible. Systematic theology is just a series of proof texts, plucking verses out of the Bible uh, to support our man-made doctrines and categories and so forth. And I would respond to that by saying two things. The first uh, would be wrong. (laughs) Um, No, but really, I would say, well, you can do systematic theology poorly, So systematic theology should never be disconnected from the narrative of Scripture. So you shouldn't just pluck verses out of context. You should always be doing good, what's called exegesis, so interpretation of Scripture. Um, The second thing I would say is systematic theology is inevitable. It's inescapable. 
And that goes back to my question of what does it mean to be a Christian? If you're going to answer that question, it requires a systematic explanation because your answer is going to be full of certain words that mean certain things. That's systematic theology. And so if somebody says they don't like systematic theology, I think you're not reading your Bible correctly because the Bible's full of systematic statements. So I have a couple examples, just touch on these briefly. First is 1 Timothy 3.16. Paul says, we confess the mystery of godliness. And he's speaking about Jesus. And he says, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. That's a systematic statement about Jesus. This is knowledge that comes from the apostolic eyewitness testimony, but it's arranged in a systematic confession. It's a concise summary statement about Jesus' life, humiliation, and his glorification. Another example would be 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7. Paul says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles." So again, what Paul's doing is systematic theology. He's summarizing the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And I would say Paul's doing systematic theology well because he's saying it's in accordance with the Scriptures. So he's not just giving random propositions. Jesus was risen from the grave. No, it's Jesus rose from the grave in accordance with the scriptures. So it's connected to the narrative of the Bible. It's not just propositional knowledge plucked out of thin air. So one more example, Romans 4.25. Short sentence, Paul says, and the whole book of Romans really is systematic theology, but Paul says here, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So Paul is interpreting the meaning of Jesus' death theologically. It's not enough just to say uh, Jesus died, but we have to understand, well, what does that mean? And so Paul needs systematic theology to understand the meaning of Jesus' death. Jesus was delivered up. Well, that entails... God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Acts 2, 23 says Jesus was crucified according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge. So that's God's sovereignty. But he was crucified at the hands of sinful men. So all of that is embedded in that little phrase, Jesus was delivered up. And then for our trespasses. That's the atonement. What does Jesus' death mean? He died for, our, for us in our place. And then he was raised for our justification. That's our salvation. 
So my point is to do theology well, you need biblical and systematic theology. So they're not enemies, but they're friends. And it's like different tools in the toolbox. You got to use both of them. So let's move on to divine revelation. And I'm not talking about the last book of the Bible, Revelation, but Revelation in the sense of God making himself known. And there are two primary categories of divine revelation. General revelation and special revelation. So let's take these one at a time. General revelation. Here's a definition from Greg Allison. God's communication of himself to all peoples at all times in all places by which they may know of his existence, some of his attributes, and something of his moral law. And general revelation has four modes. So the four modes of general revelation are creation, conscience, God's providence, and an innate sense of God. So briefly, I'll just read a couple passages as they relate to each one. So God has made himself known in creation. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge and so forth. So God has made himself known in creation. Conscience Romans 2 12 to 16 For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So in their conscience... They have some knowledge of God. God's providence, Acts 14, 16 through 18, Paul and Barnabas are talking to some Gentiles at Lystra, and they say, in past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he didn't leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts and food with gladness. 
So God sustains the creation by his fatherly hand to Gentiles and Jews alike. God has revealed himself generally. And then the last one, Acts 17, 22 through 31. People have an innate sense of God. Ecclesiastes says God has placed eternity in our hearts. And in Acts 17, Paul is speaking to, he's speaking in the public square, and he says, I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, and I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. And then he says, what therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. And then he tells them about the true living God. So these people are worshiping something because they have this innate sense of God. So all of those categories would fall under general revelation. Some important points to note about revelation, both general and special, is that revelation is always an act of grace. God takes the initiative and he stoops, he condescends to our level to communicate himself to the creature. John Calvin called this divine accommodation, God stooping to make himself intelligible. That's an act of grace. God in his free uh, love and in his free will chooses to reveal himself to us. And then all of revelation is supernatural. So we create a distinction between general and special, and we'll talk about special in a second. We create a distinction between those two, but all revelation is supernatural. So we don't mean to suggest that general revelation is less miraculous than special revelation. They're both supernatural acts of grace. They're both miraculous All revelation is supernatural. But here's the thing about general revelation. General revelation by itself is not enough for salvation. So you can think of it like if you had a road map. You, you know the right, the end location, God, but you don't have the right route or the, the right way to get there. So you have an, an innate sense of God, God exists, but without special revelation, you don't know how to get there. So general revelation uh, by itself is not enough for salvation. General revelation provides sufficient knowledge of our guilt, human sinfulness, but it doesn't provide sufficient knowledge unto salvation. So that requires special revelation. And special revelation has five modes. The mighty acts of God, dreams and visions, divine speech 
It was just Christmas time, the incarnation. And then the last one, Scripture. So here's the definition of special revelation. Special revelation is God's communication of himself to particular people at particular times in particular places, especially for salvation, to disclose specific knowledge of his nature and his attributes, his moral law, principles, and ways. The mighty acts of God would be events like the Exodus, the conquest of the promised land, dreams and visions like those God gave to Joseph, to Daniel, divine speech, think of the phrase, thus says the Lord, or God directly speaking with Moses. The incarnation is God's, the climax of God's revelation of himself when he took on a human nature. And then the last mode of special revelation is scripture, which is God's written revelation of himself. So Francis Schaeffer has a book called He is There and He is Not Silent. That's all special revelation is about. God exists and God has spoken, and we know God through his word. So in your notes, there's a whole, um, there's some other things about special revelation I'm going to skip over, but you can check those out in the notes. So now let's move on to the Word of God. So as I mentioned, Scripture is one mode of revelation, special revelation. And the big idea with the, the doctrine of the Word of God is what is Scripture? What's its nature? What's, what are the attributes of Scripture? And the application is, do I view God's Word as life-giving? So we're going to discuss uh, the different aspects of Scripture's nature. Scripture is inspired, inerrant, authoritative, we can speak of the necessity and sufficiency of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, and Scripture's power. Now, theologians use the Word of God in three major ways. The first would be the Word of God refers to Jesus, God the Son incarnate in the flesh. The eternal second person of the Trinity assumed a human nature and became the incarnate word of God. He makes visible the invisible God. So Jesus is the word of God. Now the second way we would talk about the word of God would be divine speech. As I mentioned, thus says the Lord. Or think of let there be in Genesis. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. So God speaks things into existence. Or the Ten Commandments would be another example of God's word. Sometimes they're called the Ten Words instead of the Ten Commandments. 
And then the third way of speaking about the word of God would be what we're going to focus on, which is scripture. The word of God written by human authors, superintended by the Holy Spirit. So we're going to define all of these words. Thanks, superintendent of a school. Uh, You're overseeing the process. God is overseeing the work of human authors as they write the word, but the word of God is inspired, inerrant word of God. I'm not going to touch on all the attributes of Scripture. I'm just going to focus on the inspiration, the inerrancy, and the authority of Scripture. When Trace teaches his class on how to read the Bible, he's going to cover some of the other attributes, the necessity, the clarity, the sufficiency of Scripture. But for time's sake, I'm just going to cover three of them. So first, let's do the inspiration So the summary of the inspiration of Scripture, what is that about? The summary is, all Scripture is God-breathed because the Holy Spirit superintended, he oversaw the process as the biblical authors composed their writings, the Word of God. So let's discuss that term, God-breathed. That's the bedrock of inspiration comes from 2 Timothy 3, 16, and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God or woman may be complete equipped for every good work. So the implication of the inspiration is that the word of God is authoritative and true. It comes directly out of God's being. It comes out of his breath. Now the other implication of the inspiration of scripture is that all of scripture is inspired, not parts of scripture. The unified whole of Scripture, the Old and New Testament, is inspired. Romans 15.4, Paul says, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. The Old Testament was useful. Paul was steeped in it. So divine inspiration differs from how we typically use that word. We think of artistic inspiration. You might think of a eureka moment, maybe even a manic episode of extreme creativity. That's not what we're talking about when we say the Bible's inspired. Uh, Divine inspiration is more than artistic inspiration. The word of God carries an intrinsic authority because it originates from God's own being. So we should think about how Jesus viewed Scripture. 
we can confidently say that Jesus and the apostles believed that Scripture was inspired. They never take a critical stance toward the content of the Old Testament. They accept it totally and without reservation. Jesus viewed the Old Testament, he viewed himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So Matthew 5, 17 through 18. Jesus said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, those are grammatical markings for vowels in Hebrew, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So divine authority of Scripture is extended to every word of Scripture, even to the iota and the dot. In Luke 16, 17, Jesus uses the parable of the dishonest manager to affirm that it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And then in John 10, 35, Jesus assumes that Scripture cannot be broken. And then, how else did Jesus view the Old Testament? Well, he thought it was a historical document. You know, novel thought. He thought Isaiah wrote Isaiah. He thought David wrote Psalm 10. He thought Moses wrote the law. So he and the apostles never cast any doubt on the stories or things alluded or cited in Scripture. Jesus takes them as real historical events. So let's talk about the process of inspiration. When we say it's inspired, how was it inspired? And it's important to note that we don't know exactly how the text was inspired. It's a mystery, but we believe this in faith. Here's a quote from Herman Bovink on the process of inspiration. He says, a doctrine of inspiration, therefore, is not an explanation of Scripture, nor actually a theory, but it is and ought to be a believing confession of what Scripture witnesses concerning itself. So we believe that the Bible is inspired according to what Scripture says about itself. Scripture says it's inspired. 2 Peter 1.21 For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that verse is going to help us explain the process of inspiration. That's what we're trying to come to terms with. How, how were men carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote the Word of God? So, I affirm a view of inspiration 
The title's not important, but I call it the organic inspiration of Scripture. And that means it was a living, holistic process as opposed to a mechanical process. So we're trying to understand how were the authors carried along by the Holy Spirit. Well, they were carried along in an organic way, not a mechanical way. So... So this view of inspiration will affirm that the human writers of Scripture would be diverse in their language, their style, their culture, their background, their education, interests, their abilities, their personalities, but that God uses their individuality, their particularity to reveal this multifaceted picture of the truth. So there was a human role in the composition of Scripture. And despite human sinfulness, despite human fallenness, God preserved their writing from error or falsehood. And he did this through the superintending work of the Holy Spirit. So this view, when I say it's organic, it stands apart from a mechanical dictation view. So think of dictating to Siri on your iPhone. Uh, the dictation view would understand carried along by the Holy Spirit to be robotic, where the human author is stripped of their agency, they become just the speaking tube through which God speaks, or like a puppet master dictating the words to be written. Now we can caricature that view, but we should note that there are examples of dictation in Scripture. So Exodus 34, the Lord said to Moses, write these words for in accordance with the words that I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So that's dictation. God is telling Moses specifically what to write. Now he wasn't strict of his agency. There's free will there. Uh, but ultimately, I think the dictation view is the exception, not the norm in Scripture. The normative pattern would be that God chose certain writers, and those writers chose what they wanted to write, but they did so under the superintending work of the Holy Spirit. So a few more comments about the inspiration. We can say it's verbal, plenary, and concursive. So the verbal inspiration would be that the inspiration extends to the very words of Scripture. And you might be thinking, okay, Aaron, I got it. <laughs> What's the big deal? Well, in the mid-20th century, there was a debate about the nature of the Word of God. And there's a theologian, Karl Barth, who would exclusively use the phrase, Word of God, to refer to Jesus. As I said, that's not a problem. Jesus is the Word of God. The problem is that word, exclusive. So, Barth would have a problem pointing to his Bible and saying, this is the Word of God. He would never say that. 
he would say, this contains the word of God. Scripture is a witness to the word of God. But I reject that. I believe the Bible, even the very words, are God's words written. It is the word of God. The plenary sense of inspiration, think of a conference and you go to breakout sessions, but then you go to the plenary session. Everybody's there. The plenary inspiration is the whole of Scripture is inspired, Old and New Testament. Not some parts are more inspired than other parts. Modern people are tempted to be embarrassed or uncertain about what to do with so-called problematic passages of Scripture. So we might be tempted to say, well, you know, some parts might be more inspired than others. You know, an example of this might be Psalm 139. It's this beautiful psalm about how God knit us together in our mother's womb. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. And then how does that psalm end? Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) It is the word of the Lord. Not part of that psalm is more inspired than other parts of that psalm. The whole psalm is inspired. And we can talk maybe offline about what do we do with those difficult passages. Or we might think of, you know, the red letter movement. And they don't say this outright, but the implication is that Jesus' words are more inspired than others. We would say, no, all Scripture is inspired. And then lastly, just to review, concursive is a fancy say of a fancy way of saying that God and humans collaborated in the writing of Scripture. God used human authors, and he superintended the process. Luke was a physician, Paul was a scholar, but the writing of Scripture was this collaborative effort. So to review, because Scripture is inspired, because it is God-breathed, it's authoritative and true. And we're called to trust God in all that it affirms. The next attribute we'll discuss is the inerrancy of Scripture. Scripture is true in all that it affirms, Scripture doesn't contradict itself. It is totally true and trustworthy. Now, two key terms for the inerrancy of Scripture have historically been wed together. Inerrancy means the freedom from error or untruth. Infallibility means that the Bible is incapable of erring or making mistakes. So historically, those two words have been wed together. The Bible is inerrant and infallible. It's free from error and it is incapable of error. 
And together, those terms have referred to the truthfulness, the trustworthiness of Scripture. But in modern theology, people want to separate them. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. So some might say that infallibility would refer to God's ability to accomplish his purposes, God's ability to save. So somebody might say that they would affirm the scriptures are infallible and that they never fail to save, but scripture does contain errors of history, chronology, science, things, and so forth. But I reject that distinction and view the two terms as interchangeable or synonymous. The word of God is inerrant, it is without error, and it cannot err. It is infallible. So in John 17, 17, Jesus says, your word is truth. And in 1035, he says, scripture cannot be broken. So if something is true, it corresponds to reality. That's known as a correspondence theory of truth. It matches up with reality. God's word is true because it tells us the truth about the world. Somebody can err through deceit or by mistake, but God never deceives and God does not make mistakes. So scripture will never affirm anything that's contrary to fact or to reality. Likewise, scripture will never contradict itself. So here's a definition of inerrancy from Paul Feinberg in a a document known as the Chicago Statement that was produced by a group of scholars in in the 1970s. And it's important to note, too, okay, you know, this document was written in the 1970s. It wasn't that the doctrine was created in the 1970s, but they were responding to a particular problem, and the problem was a bunch of people were saying that the Bible uh, was full of errors and so forth. So this was a, a response to that movement. And here's what Paul Feinberg says. He says, inerrancy means that when all the facts are known, The scriptures and their original autographs, so the original writings, and properly interpreted, will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with social, physical, or life sciences. So that definition implies a couple of things. Uh, The first thing, and this is tricky, but it's important Uh, The first is that human interpretation of Scripture can be wrong. Humans have a fallen human nature. We're sinful, and thus we err. God speaks clearly, but we don't always hear clearly. And so hermeneutics is the discipline of interpreting Scripture. And so we can't confuse our interpretation of Scripture with the inerrancy of Scripture. And on secondary theological issues, sometimes people forget that that's a 
what might be a valid interpretation of Scripture does not necessarily mean that that is the inerrant interpretation of what Scripture means there. So it's, it's a tricky business. However, knowing that the Scripture is inerrant should guard our interpretation of Scripture. It should guard us from being uh, reckless with making God's Word say whatever we want it to say. The second thing about that definition is that Scripture uses, this is a mouthful, phenomenological language. Phenomenology is how something appears to you. So basically... Scripture uses ordinary speech. That's what that means. Scripture uses phenomenological language. They're not intend, some, the biblical writers are not always intending to be technically precise according to modern standards. So the example Allison provides in his book is in Genesis 1 when the creation narrative speaks about two great lights, the sun and the moon. And of course, we know the sun is this flaming ball of plasma, and the moon merely reflects light. That's not an error. That's not a statement that is untrue, because Moses is not intending to write with technical precision. So Scripture is using ordinary speech. It's true in what it affirms. So a practical example is, I assigned a 400-page book for this class. Is that true or not? Well, to be precise, it was 426 pages. But I haven't spoken an untruth. That's ordinary speech. We all know how this works. You know what I was intending to communicate. And so if you don't apply that degree of skepticism to any other issue in life, why do you apply that to the Bible? It doesn't make any sense. And so I'm not going to rehearse all the examples that Allison lists in his book, but probably the most significant questions people have regarding inerrancy is what do we do with the different sequencing of events in the Gospels, divergent, parallel accounts of the same story with slight variations? What do we do with that? Well, are those contradictions? And the short answer is no. We believe varied accounts, differing chronological orderings are consistent with inerrancy and infallibility. This requires the hard work of what's called harmonization. How do we understand how the Bible fits together? We don't ignore these problems. We don't ignore these concerns. And we don't despair at difficult passages that appear to conflict in Scripture. But instead, we approach God's word in faith. And we approach God's word in humility, seeking understanding, confidently affirming that God's word is truth and he is not going to lead us astray. And then we thank God for all the resources that we have to address those difficult questions. Think of all the books and commentaries and study Bibles and language resources uh, that more than any other time in history are accessible to us. Uh, that's a great gift. 
So ultimately, the, the issue of inerrancy is about the posture with which we approach and read the Bible. We don't approach the Bible with skepticism. We don't come to the Bible with an overinflated view of self, exalting ourselves over the text, trusting our own omnicompetence to understand the text. That's the error of the liberal movement known as historic criticism. Instead, we approach the word of God trembling and with humility. And then we let scripture read us as we submit to its authority. And we trust God, even with difficult passages. And as I get older, I'm trying to become more comfortable with, I don't know. You can test me if we have some questions at the end. (laughs) There's not an apparent discrepancy that's going to make my faith collapse like a house of cards. I'm not afraid of questions. God isn't hiding things from us. God will not deceive us. God is reliable, and his word is reliable, and we can trust him. So that is the inerrancy of Scripture. The second to last attribute of Scripture is the authority of Scripture. So the authority naturally flows from the inspiration. Because Scripture comes to us from God and is breathed out by God, it bears God's authority. Thus, the authority of Scripture possesses the right to command what Christians are to believe, what we are to do and be. And it has the authority to prohibit what we are not to believe, do, and be. So Scripture is foundational to what we believe. And the church is subject to the authority of Scripture. The Scriptures possess authority. And so when we say that the Bible is authoritative, we human beings are not giving the Bible its authority. We're acknowledging what it already is. So the Protestant tradition has historically emphasized and elevated the authority of Scripture. We've elevated the preaching of God's Word. we all gather to submit to the authority of God's word. Let me share a quote with you just because this uh, really uh, inspires me. It's by Herman Bovink on the authority of scripture. He says, For if a minister is not convinced of the divine truth of the word he preaches, his preaching loses all authority, influence, and power. If he is not able to bring a message from God, who then gives him the right to act on behalf of people of like nature with himself? Who gives him the freedom to put himself on a pulpit a few feet above them to speak to them about the highest interests of their soul and life and even to proclaim to them their eternal weal and woe? Who would dare Who would be able to do this unless he has a word of God to proclaim? 
Both the Christian faith and Christian preaching requires divine authority as their foundation. I just, I love that quote. It's especially thinking about the privilege and responsibility of preaching. (laughs) This is God's authority. Apart from that, who gives me the right to stand and speak about the most precious things in people's lives? So the Reformation debates were historically centered around the authority of Scripture. And this is where we get the Protestant principle of sola scriptura, Scripture alone. Scripture alone is the ultimate authority for the church. And the authority of the church's teaching should come from Scripture, primarily. Now, the Catholic Church has what's called the magisterium. That's tradition with a capital T, not tradition with a lowercase t. So, the magisterium of the Catholic Church is the teaching authority of the church exercised through bishops, primarily the Pope, through papal encyclicals, their letters. And the Catholic Church has a dual track of authority. They have scripture plus tradition. And that would be tradition with a capital T. Scripture and tradition. So the church, instead of being subject to scripture, is elevated to a place alongside scripture and ultimately to a place above scripture. Now, sola scriptura The Bible alone should not be misunderstood. It should not lead to a bare biblicism without any reference to tradition. So it should not lead to, all I need is just me and my Bible. Disconnected from historic Christian teaching. Lowercase t, tradition is okay. So, Scripture alone is not the same thing as Scripture only. When we say we believe in the authority of Scripture alone, we mean to say that Scripture is the final arbiter of faith and practice. That means like the Supreme Court. It's the final decision which I know that's technically maybe not not true in all cases, but it, it has the final say on things. It's the final judge. Scripture alone has the, the final authority. So sola scriptura is not a rejection of tradition. And what the Reformation wanted to do was to reform and purge the tradition of its errors. So sola scriptura rejects tradition that elevates the church's teaching to be on equal footing with scripture or above scripture. So we can use and affirm historic 
teachings of the Christian faith. I love the creeds. We need things like the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, to, to tell us what, is, what has the church historically believed. But those statements are summary statements of what Scripture itself teaches. So those creeds don't possess authority over Scripture. Creeds are true insofar as the content conveyed is subject to the authority and truthfulness of Scripture. So that's what we mean by the authority of Scripture. And then the last aspect of our doctrine of the Word of God is the illumination of Scripture. We should reflect on the transformative power of Scripture. Scripture bears authority because it flows from God. It's God-breathed. It's inspired. But illumination is distinct from inspiration. Here's the definition of illumination of Scripture from Greg Allison. The illumination of Scripture is the work of the Holy Spirit by which he enables the understanding of Scripture by enlightening its readers. Illumination is needed because of the spiritual blindness and stubborn ignorance of sinful people. For this insensitivity to divine truth to be overcome, the same Spirit who inspired Scripture opens it up, opens its comprehension. So, two important passages in support of this teaching. First Corinthians two, ten to sixteen, and then Luke chapter twenty four. So first Corinthians two, I'm not going to read that whole section, uh, but in verse eleven. Paul says, for who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we've not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And then he goes on, he says, the natural person doesn't accept the things of the spirit of God, uh, but we understand the mind of the Lord, or for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So we need the spirit for spiritual understanding. And then Luke 24, uh, verse 27, Jesus appears to disciples after his resurrection, and it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted it to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's the illumination of scripture. 
And so historically in worship services, there's prayer before the sermon. Prayer was, there was prayer of illumination before the sermon. And that wasn't just uh, prayer because it sounds like it's a good idea or that it creates a nice transition from one part of the worship service to the next. No, it is a real necessary request for the Spirit of God to be specially present and open the Scriptures to our understanding. And then in our daily reading, we should pray that the Spirit illuminates Scripture as we read it so that we can be transformed by its power. We need the Spirit to illuminate God's word for rebuking, correcting, teaching, training in righteousness. We need the Spirit to help us see and understand the text rightly. Hebrews said that the the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So this has been briefly our doctrine of Scripture. And we've covered the nature of theology, general revelation and special revelation. And Scripture is a form of special revelation where God reveals himself to us. And then as the Word of God, the Word of God is inspired, it is inerrant, it's authoritative, And then we need the Spirit to open up our minds for understanding so that we can be transformed by the Word of God. So the big idea, what is the nature of Scripture? And the application for us, do I view God's Word as life-giving? Psalm 119.25, For my soul clings to the dust, give me life according to your word.